Well, it is a joy to gather for worship this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Pastor Tim Cockrell. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and I encourage you, if you're not there already, to turn to that passage that we just read in Matthew chapter 19. And what a beautiful privilege it has been to have a parent-child dedication this morning. And as we've already mentioned, it's fitting because we're going to begin actually in verse 13 with the parents who are bringing their children to Jesus. Now, in those days, it was customary for parents to bring a child to a rabbi or to a priest even to receive a blessing. We think about even Jesus when he came into the temple and Simeon in Luke chapter 2 pronounced a blessing on him, although that wasn't the reason why Mary and Joseph had come. And so these parents desired for their children to know God and to follow him at a young age. And so they heard about this itinerant rabbi who seemed to teach with authority and do miracles with the power of God. And so they wanted him to pray over their children. But we read there in Matthew chapter, four, uh, chapter 19, verse 14, or 13, that the disciples rebuked the people. You see, the disciples assumed that if they were building a kingdom, they had to look for the most powerful, the most influential, the richest people, because that's what kingdoms are built with on earth. So they were looking for the popular people, the influential and powerful people. And these children just didn't make the cut. They were seen as insignificant, unimportant, and ultimately, a waste of Jesus' time. Now, the irony here is back in Matthew chapter 18, when the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Do you remember what he did? He brought a little child and had that child stand in the middle of them. And he says, this is the picture of childlike faith that makes one great in the kingdom. But the disciples were rebuking these families for trying to waste Jesus' time. But Jesus, in verse 14, it's such a beautiful verse, says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. As we've already mentioned this morning, these children modeled the humility and simple faith that Jesus desires for all of us to have. And I would just comment in passing here, that Jesus holds a very high value on children. And it's very clear to me that that grace holds a high value on children in the programs that we do, in the people that serve in those programs, but can I encourage us to have a church culture that views children not as the church of the future, but as the church of the now? That even as we have older mentoring younger, as, as each of you model what it means to follow Jesus, that we would not see children as those who are to be waiting in the wings, but rather who are even now being discipled and trained to be kingdom ambassadors to a world desperately in hope, in need of the hope that we have. And so Jesus takes these children in his arms and he prays for them and then he sends them on their way. Wouldn't you have loved to heard that prayer? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for a moment? But now the text is going to give us a, a clear contrast Jesus has just commended the humility and dependence of these little children, these helpless infants, if you will. And now comes up a man who was rich and powerful. Verse 16, and behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? We know from some parallel texts and even from the context here that this man had many possessions and that he was actually a ruler, a person of authority in that society. 
And so the, the contrast is really quite striking. From helpless, insignificant children to a powerful and prosperous ruler. But there's a sobering warning here. Because the parallel texts tell us that this man ran up to Jesus and bowed down before him to ask him his question. There is a sincerity that is here, a devoutness and spiritual ambition that says, Jesus, I want to be rightly related to God. I desire eternal life, so tell me, what is it that I need in order to have access to God and the promise of eternal life? But the reason why this story is such an important warning is because ultimately this man walks away from Jesus, sincerely interested, but ultimately unchanged. And the reason for that is because we'll see in our text that he is clinging to substitute saviors. Often we'll use the term idols. We're going to use the term substitute saviors this morning because I think when we think of idols, we often think of wood or stone or metal objects that we might bow down to. But a substitute savior is anything that we might love, trust, or obey instead of God. It is something that we devote our heart to. It's the thing that we wake up to in the morning thinking about that as we go to sleep that remains on our mind. It's the thing that we are ultimately devoted to that has the danger of di displacing God himself. And so the first substitute savior that we see here is actually very clear in verse 16. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Notice all the assumptions that are already wrapped up in that question, right? You see, I get the impression that this man was a doer. He was successful. And at a young age, to be rich in that culture, you had to either be well-connected or very well-gifted. And so he comes to Jesus assuming that you relate to God based on your moral performance, your spiritual exercises. If you look at your spiritual report card, there ought to be checks in every box so that then when you show it to God at the gates of heaven, he says, all right, You've met the minimum requirements, come on in. Now, that's not uncommon. Actually, if you look at almost every world religion, there's this assumption that you relate to God by what you do. And that if you simply keep the right rules and avoid the wrong things, that perhaps you'll be accepted and welcomed into God's presence. But the other thing that's embedded here is that there is an assumption that whatever he needs to do, he can do it. He just needs to know what it is. He says, Jesus, I am a self-sufficient self-starter. You point me to the requirement, and I'll do it. I'll take it on. Let's admit that there is a bit of this in every one of us that wants to prove our worth to God, that wants to show our self-sufficiency, that wants to meet him halfway rather than being helpless and hopeless in his presence. But Jesus is going to surprise him. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now here Jesus is challenging his definition of good. He says if you're going to think about good, don't think about moral good, think about ultimate good. When you think about God and his purity and perfection, what are you going to do that's ever going to measure up to that standard? But then Jesus responds and says, if you want to enter life, then keep the commandments. Now, we shouldn't understand this as if Jesus is saying the way to relate to God is by doing and obeying. But rather, as Jesus will say all through the book of John, if you love me, 
then you will keep my commandments. That obedience is the overflow of a right relationship with God. Now the man in verse 18 rightly asks, which ones, Jesus? Because there were 613 Jewish laws. He says, Jesus, can we narrow it down a little bit? And Jesus says, all right. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here Jesus gives five of the Ten Commandments, and he seems to focus primarily on those that are having to do with our relationships with others. And so then he concludes with the broad general commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Now I have to imagine that man was not very excited about Jesus' answer. Because he came saying, I want to know what great thing I need to do, and Jesus gives him a Sunday school answer. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't bear false witness. It's like, those are things I've heard since I was a little boy. There's nothing new or novel or exciting about that. There's no spiritual quest or higher vision that I can attain by doing those things. And so my hunch is that that's kind of the tone here in verse 20. The young man said to him, but all these I have kept. And then the key question, what do I still lack? I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, this man grossly overestimates his own ability. He looks at his moral performance, and I imagine that because Jesus started with murder and adultery, he's like, okay, I haven't killed anybody, haven't committed adultery, and then the rest it was like, yeah, well, I'm better than most. But isn't that true of most of us? Don't we tend to grade ourselves on the curve? Don't we tend to overestimate our ability? Let me give you an example. If I were to ask you all this morning, how many of you believe that you are good drivers? How many of you would say, yes, I believe I'm a good driver? Probably most of you, but I've seen a few of you drive. (laughs) I'm just saying your perspective may not be exactly right. But not only does he grossly overestimate his ability, he greatly underestimates God's holiness. The distance between him and God And so he is likely comparing himself to others that are around him, and he has always been at the top of his class. He's always on the curve, been at the top of the curve. But he grossly underestimates the distance between him and God. I can't help but think of a story. When Katie and I were first married, I had the privilege of serving or uh, studying over in Israel. Our son Caleb was about seven months old when we went over there, and toward the end of our time, we had the chance to do a, a short weekend getaway down to the Red Sea. And if you know the Red Sea, it is world-renowned for snorkeling. And so we went to a beach, but it was the off-season, so there was hardly anybody on this beach. And so Katie and I rented uh, some snorkels, and we were going to take turns going out and going snorkeling. Now, you need to know something. Katie is a very good swimmer. I am not. And so she went out, and she was snorkeling, and she loved it, and there were these two big piers and a distance between that you would snorkel right along the reef. And so she went out, and she enjoyed seeing all the fish, and she came back, and so we traded off, and I went out there on the pier. And so I looked from one pier to the other, and I was like, I can do that. And so I started swimming. And I I was looking at the fish, and I was having a great time, and then I looked up. That pier was a long way away. And so I started swimming a little faster with a little bit more panic if ever you found yourself in that moment. And I began to, to thrash a little bit in my swimming And I look up, and I'm maybe barely halfway. 
And soon I began to think, my wife's going to be a widow because I'm going to drown right here. And eventually, after my feet were cut trying to keep myself up out of the water on the reef, and after getting completely exhausted, I made it to the other side. But you see, I had grossly overestimated my ability, grossly underestimated the distance. Friends, this morning, we serve a holy God who calls us to approach him, not in our own holiness, because even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, because they are saturated in self-confidence and self-righteousness, and we can never approach God on that basis. And so this man comes hoping that he will be able to enter on the basis of his moral performance. And so this man asks, all these things I've kept, but what do I still lack? And that's the question that I want to focus on. Because if we hope to relate to God by being good enough, we'll always struggle with uncertainty and a lack of assurance. You see, even though this man was confident in his performance, there was this restlessness this sense of conviction of conscience that he was falling short somehow, that when it was all said and done, he was going to be finding himself an outsider rather than insider. And whenever we try to be good enough or work hard enough, we might be able to fool everybody around us. We might look good and be impressive in our spiritual resume, but ultimately our conscience convicts us because God is holy and we are not. And so Jesus responds to his question with a, a test. But it's not some spiritual quest or, or mystical desire. Jesus says in verse 21, if you would per be perfect, go, sell what you possess. Sorry, it's not advancing for me. Looks like we're having a little bit of trouble there. Thank you. If you want to just take it back one. Thanks. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus identified in this man a spiritual ambition that could be a very good thing. He wasn't satisfied with the status quo. He knew that there was something missing, and so Jesus brings him to a spiritual crossroad. And the choice that he makes is going to determine whether he ultimately finds that eternal life he's been longing for or whether he continues living for himself in self-satisfied self-sufficiency but ultimately wrestling with this gnawing emptiness and this deep-seated conviction of conscience. And so Jesus tells him to sell everything. Now this is not a matter of money, ultimately. It's a matter of devotion. Jesus knows that this man is clinging to a substitute savior. That is, money and his possessions are the things that he had come to love and trust and obey. And so he says to the man, if you desire to receive what it is that you are longing, you must first open your hand and relinquish that which you've been clinging to that will not satisfy and cannot save. So he tells the man to go and to sell everything and give it to the poor. Ultimately, what he's doing is challenging this man to surrender his substitute savior. Because we can't serve two masters. That's what Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 reminds us. That we can't have a divided allegiance. We will either serve God and, or money. 
You see, many times I fear that we as Christians approach God as if he just wants a compartment of our heart. God, okay, I'm gonna give you Sunday morning. I'm gonna show up to Bible study even. I might even pray like before an exam or something. But then I'm gonna live the rest of my life. God doesn't want a compartment of your heart. He wants to sit on its throne. And he is a jealous God, not only for his own glory, but for your good knowing that if you pour out your heart into those things which are not God, it will leave you empty and broken and disappointed. And so he calls this man to let go of the substitute savior that he had been clinging to because following Jesus requires undivided loyalty and an exclusive obedience. So let's just pause here for a second because if we're honest, every one of us have something that we are prone to love trust and obey. That when things go wrong, we tend to gravitate toward it to save us or to make us feel secure. For this man, it was his money and his moral performance. What is it for you? Because they're deceitful. Many times they are good things that have been transformed into God things. And that by giving too much of our heart to them, we begin to drift away from God and toward the things that we ultimately desire. Let me challenge you with a few substitute saviors that we might be prone to follow. First of all, the approval or admiration of others. Now, there's not one of us here this morning that doesn't like to be liked. We want to be approved and admired. We are maybe people pleasers who say, I want to live my life in ways that people think I'm a good person, a nice person, and someone that they want to be around. That's not a bad thing but it's a bad ultimate goal. Because when the moment comes where we have to stand for truth or do what other people approve of, God is very clear and unrelenting that we have to stand for what is right. There's also success and achievement. Maybe that's academically for you, maybe it's in your career. You wanna climb that ladder, you wanna prove your worth. And you just think if I get that next promotion, if I just get this next degree, if I just get this next publication, then maybe that's going to satisfy me. Maybe that will be my identity and make me worth something. For some of you, it's romantic love. You just want to be loved. You want someone to think that you're special. You want to get married and have a family. And you think, if I could just have that, that would make me happy. But even as we talked about last week, marriage is a good thing, but it is a hard thing. And it is a lousy savior because only Christ can be our savior. Fourth, maybe comfort and pleasure. When times get hard and the stress begins to build, do you try to escape into something that makes you feel comfortable or good? Something maybe even that you know is wrong and sinful, but that you say, I just need to do this because life is hard and this is my only escape. Or perhaps for you it's power and control. You wanna be able to manage every facet of your life trying to protect yourself from the pressures of the present and the uncertainties of the future. And so you think, if I just plan hard enough and think well enough, that I'll be able to control all the aspects of my life, all the relationships that feel unpredictable, and that then maybe I will be happy. Let me give you a practical test for substitute saviors in your life. Substitute saviors are those things that you are willing to sin in order to have, or that you are willing to sin when you don't get them. 
So you're willing to sin in order to have them. You're willing to compromise your character just so you can have that thing that you've been longing for that might be in obvious or in far more subtle ways. Or it could be something that when you don't get it, when life is going along and all of a sudden you're denied those things your heart is longing for, sinful anger, bitterness, and resentment begin to pour out of you. So Jesus is warning this man that he has to relinquish this substitute savior if he desires to follow after him. <clears throat> Excuse me. But now he's going to continue and take advantage of a teachable moment with his disciples. Because in verse 22, the young man heard this and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Did you notice what Jesus said to this man at the end of verse 21? Come, follow me. Do you remember where he said that before? To the disciples, didn't he? On the Sea of Galilee. He says, come follow me. And they left their nets and they left their boats. And they followed after him. He said this to Matthew when he was there at the tax collecting booth. And Matthew left everything to follow him. And although I don't believe he's inviting this man necessarily to be a part of the 12, he's inviting him to be a disciple. But this man, when confronted with the choice, said, no, I choose to hold on to my money because it is there that my identity and my significance are wrapped up. And so in a heartbreaking choice, he walks away from Jesus, hoping that ultimately his money will provide the satisfaction. Because when given the choice between following Jesus or serving a substitute savior, he chose his money. And I just wanna warn us that as easy as it is for us to shake our head at this man and say, oh, what a foolish choice. How many times a day do we walk away from Jesus who is the fountain of living water, the only thing that will satisfy our hearts, and we go to slurp the sludge of the dirty mud puddle of the world, hoping that it'll satisfy, thinking if I just keep drinking it long enough, that then my thirst will be quenched. You see, Jesus isn't just warning this man, he's warning every one of us that our hearts deceive us, and if we're not careful, we will serve something other than God. But now in this teachable moment, he turns to the disciples in verse 23, and he said, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You have to kind of just picture the disciples here for a moment, right? The disciples had a picture of what the kingdom would look like. But all of a sudden, Jesus is welcoming little infants. Little infants don't tithe. Little infants can't take positions of power. But not only is he welcoming infants, he's sending away the rich and powerful. Like, this was a who's who of Israelite society. And the disciples are saying, what kind of kingdom is this? So Jesus takes advantage of this moment to say, truly I say to you, only with great difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now before we go any further, I wanna warn you about something. When you read the word rich person in the text, where does your mind go? Is it like a poolside villa in Florida? Somebody that's driving a really flashy, expensive car? Somebody who has a seven-figure bank account and never has to worry about money? Friends, I want to encourage you to, instead of rich person, put your name right there. Because you are a rich person. 
I don't care whether you are a poor college student or someone who has had every success in life. If all of the world were gathered in this room, you would easily be in the top 1%, financially speaking. And so Jesus is warning us at the deceitfulness of riches because that's a part of the nature of greed. We never think that we're the ones who are rich, right? Because we compare ourselves to someone else. We say, well, I'm not greedy. I just want a little more. Oh, you see, that's the favorite phrase of greed. If I just had a little more, if I could just get it a little faster, if I just had what someone else has, then, then I would be happy. So Jesus isn't condemning money per se, but rather he's warning us that money has a unique ability to blind us to our deeper spiritual need, to give us the illusion of self-sufficiency, such that when trouble comes, we say, well, I've got money in the bank account. When our identity begins to be shaken, we say, well, I've got a good job that pays well. I must be someone important. But he warns them that it is with great difficulty a person who is rich can enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 24, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, commentators have gone to great lengths to try to explain this in a way that makes sense of how it could happen. Some people say, well, the word isn't actually camel, the word is cable. And so a cable going through an eye of a needle would be really hard to thread that through. Other people would say, oh, eye of a needle was actually a small pedestrian gate in the gates of Israel. And so rather than opening the big gates, if just the pedestrian gate was open, then a camel could maybe go through it, but it would have to get down on its knees and have its burden taken off of its back, and only then could it enter into that gate. Friends, I think we're missing the whole point. Jesus is giving us a picture that is so ridiculous that it would be impossible. A camel was the largest animal that the Middle Eastern people would have regularly seen, and the eye of a needle was the smallest possible opening they could think of. I think this has the same basic effect as when we say, that has a snowball's chance in Hades, or that's like trying to get blood from a stone. You say to yourself, that, that could never happen. That's impossible. And that's exactly Jesus' point. Because as he talks about money as a master, there's a danger for every one of us that we might imagine that we are self-sufficient when in fact we are blind to our real spiritual need. Let me give you a few practical questions, some practical tests that we can ask to say, God, could this be me? Because you may know the Bible contains more warnings about greed and money than it does about sex. And so we ought to start by saying, this could be a problem for me. This could be an issue that I struggle with. First of all, do I struggle to give to others generously? One of the best ways to cultivate in ourselves the discipline of contentment is to give to others. I'm reminded of a story of a man who came to his pastor, and he said, Pastor, I'm just greatly distressed because when I first started attending church, I was very poor. I was only making $100 a week. And he said, and I wanted to tithe on that, and so I gave $10 a week. But then before too long, God began to, to grow my prosperity to where then I was beginning to make $1,000 a week. And suddenly, instead of just having to give God $10, I had to start giving him $100. And he said, and then God just grew my business in ways I never would have expected, and so now I'm making $10,000 a week. 
He said, but pastor, I just can't bring myself to give $1,000 a week to the church. And the pastor said, well, then let me pray for you. And he said, God, I pray that you would return this man's income to the level in which he can faithfully give to you. (laughs) You see, there is a danger that we think if I just had more, I would be more generous. But in reality, what you do now with what you have is a reflection of your heart. Secondly, do I envy those who have more than I do, especially those that I don't think have worked as hard as I do? Oh, they don't deserve that, I do. You know, I ought to be able to take a vacation like that. It's a reflection of my sinful heart. Third, all right, it's up there, it's not back there maybe. Just having a little bit of trouble. Do I struggle with worry and fear in my finances? Is money something that you wake up in the morning thinking about? As you go to sleep, are you thinking about your retirement account, wondering at what point you'll be able to retire or pay off your house or pay the bills? You see, this can be a litmus test of whether money is actually master in your life. Fourth, do I use possessions as a measure of my value and significance? Oh, this is a subtle but an important one. If your possessions become a signpost of your significance, if what you have is a measure of who you are, then it is a real danger that money has become a master in your life and has blinded you to the fact that you've come to trust in it rather than in God himself. And so now the disciples respond in just astonishment in verse 25 because in their culture, the rich were clearly blessed of God, that if you did what was right, God rewarded you with financial wealth. And so the disciples, on hearing Jesus say that it was so difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom, they ask in verse 25, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them. Here's what he says in verse 26. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Don't miss this. The disciples say, if the rich can't enter the kingdom, if those who have every earthly advantage, aren't first in line for the kingdom, then who gets in? And Jesus gives them an answer that none of them would have thought. It's impossible for every one of you. With man, it is impossible. You see, Jesus is pointing us ultimately to our spiritual need, that we can't work hard enough or do enough And so if we adopt that mentality that it's based on our moral performance or our religious effort, we will be lost and empty and hopeless because we are dead in our sins. We are blind to our need. Then Jesus gives that beautiful phrase, but with God, all things are possible. You see, our salvation doesn't depend on our initiative or our worth, but on God's great grace. That when we were blind to our need, God found us groping in the darkness and opened our eyes to see the truth of his word. When we were imprisoned in sin, God in his grace came to open the prison doors that we might no longer be under the power of sin or subject to its penalty. When our heart was hard, and rebellious against God, God in his grace came to give us a heart of flesh on which he writes his law that we might know him and be reconciled in our relationship to him. 
Friends, let us not leave this place without marveling at the wonder of the gospel. Because if you're a Christian here this morning, it's not because you were the smartest or the best or because you grew up in the right home or the right church. If you are a Christian this morning, you are a Christian because of God's grace who redeemed you and pursued you and reconciled and now calls you to find your satisfaction in him alone. And so when we think about that great grace, we also ought to feel a sense of responsibility to know and love and trust him. And so he gives the disciples this sobering statement. But then in verse 28, 27, excuse me, Peter said in reply, now don't you love Peter? He's always saying what everybody else is thinking. Peter said in reply, see, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? You see, Peter's ears perked up when Jesus said to this man, follow me and you will have great treasures in heaven. As they watched this man walk away, they said, well, we followed you, Jesus. We gave up our nets. We gave up our boats. So then what will we have? You see, there's a bit of smug superiority There's just a little bit of entitlement that I think we can read between the lines here. And Jesus, as he so masterfully does in the very next chapter, is going to tell a story that says the very first workers that arrive on the scene, that work through the heat of the day, won't necessarily have preferential position, won't be at the top of the ladder in the kingdom, because in God's kingdom, it's all a matter of grace. But Peter rightly recognizes that the call of Christ requires sacrifice on our behalf, that we'd be willing to let go of whatever it is that we are trusting, that we might give God our unreserved devotion and obedience. But rather than chastising Peter, Jesus affirms him in verse 28. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You see, Jesus, first of all, speaks to the disciples and says, everything that you've given up will be rewarded in abundance. He actually says to the disciples, when the Son of Man comes and sits on his throne, you will be sitting on 12 thrones. You have to imagine the disciples had a big smile on their face at this point. Now that's what we've been waiting for. That's kingdom language. But there's one other thing I want you to notice. Do you notice what the reward is for faithfulness in God's kingdom? It's not relaxation and ease. It's actually greater responsibility. He says, you who have been faithful with little will now be entrusted with much in eternity as you participate in the kingly rule and reign of God. But he doesn't just restrict it to the disciples. In verse 27, he says, and everyone who have left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands will receive a hundredfold. This isn't some prosperity gospel that's written here. But Jesus is saying, whatever you have to give up to follow Jesus with all your heart will be worth it. There's not a single believer who will sit on their deathbed on this side of heaven or on the first moments of eternity who will say, man, I sure wish I wouldn't have wasted so much time living for Christ. You see, no no matter what it is that God calls you to give up, he is greater. And I know that there are people in this congregation who have had to give up things to follow Christ. Maybe you have an estranged relationship with your family. 
because you've chosen to follow Christ. Maybe you have a, a friendship that has been broken off because you refuse to affirm certain choices that they were making that the Bible clearly describes as sin. Maybe you've lost your job because you refuse to cut corners that your employer wanted you to. I want you to know that whatever it is you have to give up, it will be worth it. I think of Romans chapter 8, verse 18, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. You see, there is a cost to following Christ. But let us this morning not just focus on that cost, but rather the great gain. I'm reminded of when Katie and I were engaged. I was living down in Dallas. She was up in Maine. And we had a year of engagement. And during that year of engagement, I had a lot of freedom. I lived in the dorm with my friends. We, we would always eat in the cafeteria. I could spend my money however I wanted to. I could wake up when I wanted to. I could go to bed when I wanted to. But then when I was getting married, suddenly some of those freedoms were going away. But can you imagine how ridiculous it would have been if on my wedding morning, I turned to my groomsmen and said, well, guys, this is it. I want you to know how much I'm giving up to marry my wife, Katie. I'm not gonna be able to eat in the cafeteria anymore. I'm not gonna be able to, to spend my money the way I want to. I'm not gonna be able to leave my dirty clothes on. Well, no, I actually still did that, so that, that probably <laughs> shouldn't be included in that. No, it'd be ridiculous. Because you would say, Tim, what you are giving up can't compare to what you are receiving. And that is a bride who loves Jesus and loves you and is God's corresponding counterpart. And yes, it will be hard, and yes, there will be sacrifices, but what is given is so much greater. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you follow after him, you'll have to let go of some things that might be dear to you. But you get Christ. You know him. You experience the joy that he brings and the satisfaction that he alone can provide. And so if you are this morning at the edge of a crossroad in which you are deciding whether to follow Christ, whether first in your decision or ultimately in the way that you are living, or to live for yourself, can I warn you that the path of the rich young ruler is one of brokenness, pain, and ultimately destruction. But the path of the disciples and of faithful Christians is that we might know Christ. Finally, we conclude with Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Jesus is saying this is an upside-down kingdom. The powerful and prosperous who are so confident in their ability, so self-assured in their goodness, when they stand before God will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. Your wealth is empty. It is deceitful, and it ultimately condemns you that you put your trust in it rather than in him. But those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God, who hunger and thirst for God and long for his mercy, well, they will find their brokenness transformed to beauty. They will find their shame and guilt covered by the righteousness of Christ. And they will be welcomed into the kingdom, not because of what they have done, but because of what Christ has done for them. And so this morning, as we respond in worship and song, I encourage you to root your heart in those truths. 
that God welcomes us not because we are beautiful, but because we are broken. Not because of all that we bring, but because of all that we need. That in him we find a fountain of living water that ultimately and perfectly satisfies our heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to rescue us from ourselves, from our blindness in sin, from our brokenness in our sinful choices. And God, we see ourselves in the reflection of the rich young ruler. We are prone to self-sufficiency and arrogance, imagining that we can relate to you just on the base of our moral performance or personal effort. God, forgive us, humble us, and transform us. And God, I pray that even as we respond in song, that we would be rooted in the gospel and that every line that we sing would drive these truths deep into our heart, that it might permeate our lives and uproot these substitute saviors that are so deceitful and dangerous in our lives. God, you alone are worthy of our worship. So we love you and we thank you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.